The verses that we are reading this evening, verses 32 through the end of the chapter, they sum up the life of the early church, at least thus far in the book of Acts. It's, it's like the author takes different segments of the early church life in Jerusalem, and then he finally puts a, a ribbon or a bow on the package, summing it all up. And it's actually summing up the internal life of the church. Remember the last few weeks, just by way of review, we saw the church in the courtroom. They were standing before the Sanhedrin like men in a den of lions. As the Sanhedrin interrogated them as a man had been healed in Jerusalem. It was a notable miracle. The Sadducees could say nothing against it. But an edict had gone through Jerusalem saying that it was now illegal to preach the gospel in Jerusalem. But then we saw the disciples leaving the courtroom and entering into the throne room with one accord praying to God and asking God to intervene. Not even asking God to protect them from their threats. Not asking God to keep them safe, but asking God for boldness to go out into the streets of Jerusalem in spite of a law being passed and proclaim their faith boldly. And it says, as we remember, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Now we get a glimpse at the internal conditions that existed between the brethren at that time. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Now notice that word multitude. I just um, fastened on that word just this evening, actually on the way here. Multitude, I thought. Now we remember there was indeed a multitude at this point. It grew from 120 people in the upper room to thousands of people who have responded to the gospel. They've responded to the messages spoken by Peter. They responded another several thousand when the man was healed out there in the courts of the temple. And now we have a multitude of people who believe. You know, I've always been convinced that multitudes don't matter. You can have a remnant of people that believe and if you have a remnant, a small group of people who are on fire, they are more powerful and will get more work done than a multitude of people who are half-hearted. I would much rather have a small group of people to work with. Look, Jesus only had 12. And they were a mess. But He was able to take them and powerfully infuse His life within them and turn them loose. And a small group that's on fire is more powerful than a large group that's a mixed multitude, some hot, some cold. But when you have a multitude of people that believe, when you have a multitude of people that are turned on, you're going to turn the world upside down. That's exactly what happened. In fact, later on it says in Jerusalem, these are the men that have come here who have turned the world upside down. That's the testimony of the early church. I would like to kind of rewrite that. They've turned the world right side up. The world was already upside down. They just came and straightened it out a little bit. But it says they were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Now there was there, nor was there there any one among them who lacked 
For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who is also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated the son of encouragement. And Barnabas is food for a whole nother study. He was a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ever thought how exciting it would be to be in that congregation in the early church in Jerusalem? I mean, brand new congregation, a brand new movement, a brand new organism birthed the beginning of the church. It began at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended upon the 120 in the upper room, and it exploded. And these folks were excited about Jesus. They didn't know much about theology. They couldn't tell you much about end times, post-tribulation, pre-tribulation. They didn't know that. They just knew Jesus is still hanging around Jerusalem. And they were excited about Him. And they went everywhere preaching the gospel. They probably had bumper stickers on their donkeys and camels and stuff like that. They were excited about what God was doing. The church officially came into existence, like Jesus said he would build his church, it officially happened a few years before A.D. 40. And it occurred in Acts chapter 2, as we said, when the Holy Spirit on the Feast of Pentecost, a Jewish festival, descended upon 120 people in an upper room. And that precipitated a chain of events whereby thousands of people came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. 5,000 and then 3,000. And as we have said, it is estimated by this time there are some 20 to perhaps 25, even 30,000 Christians belonging to this one local church. Now I want to underscore that. Sometimes you can get lost in the crowd and crowds can be detrimental and therefore people say, the church is too big, I want a small church. Yet this large church was able, by the people's commitment, to enjoy intimate fellowship one with another. You know, I remember one time, in fact, I belong to a church in California whose membership is about 20,000 people now. And I remember belonging to this massive congregation. And there was a point in time where I thought, you know, this is just so big, you, nobody knows me, I don't know anybody, and it was really my fault I didn't get involved. But then I thought, as I was entertaining thoughts, you know, I'm, I want to go to a church that's about 100 people. I thought, well, what happens if that church grows? To 200, and to 300, and to 400, and to 500, and to 1,000. Then am I going to say, well, it's time for me to pick up again. Anytime the church grows over 250, I have to leave, just so I can have a small church. You see, the size isn't important. What is important is the commitment that the people make one toward another. And one thing you notice about this early church, commitment was something they were used to. It was not foreign to them. As soon as these people came to know the Lord, we are told that those who believed were baptized, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. They became committed. I have always believed that there is a transition point upon which a group of people become a church. It is not when you file for the 501c3 or you get incorporation papers from the state. The transition point is when that group 
becomes committed to one another after they've made a commitment to the Lord. They are committed to mutual growth. At the point that that commitment is born, the church is born. Because there's a relationship toward God, now there's a relationship with each other, and that relationship with each other as it is strengthened will automatically turn outward and you'll want to tell other people about Jesus Christ, and that's where evangelism takes place. Commitment. You know, for a long time we had a group of people meeting in the Lakes Apartments. You probably heard this story endlessly. It was simply a group of people. It wasn't a church, nor did I call it a church. And I didn't want to call it a church until we saw all of the people committed to the same cause, the same vision. And it when it became unanimous, and people wanted to continue meeting that way and meeting more frequently and meeting one another's needs, did we then decide to call it a church and form what is called now Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque? I found something I wanted to share with you. It, it interested me because... A pastor was asked a question, what, what the phrase faithful attendance of worship meant. They'd say, the pastor, you talk about faithful attendance of worship. What do you mean by that? Being faithfully attended toward one another. And, uh, he gave this advice. If your car started one out of three times, would you consider it faithful? If the paper boy skipped Mondays and Thursdays, would they be missed? If you didn't show up at work two or three times a month, would your boss call you faithful? If your refrigerator quit a day now and then, would you excuse it and say, oh well, it works most of the time? And if your water heater greets you with cold water one or two mornings a week, imagine February. While you're in the shower, would you call it faithful? If you miss a couple of mortgage payments in a year's time, would your mortgage holder say, well, 10 out of 12 isn't bad? And if you miss worship and attend meetings only often enough to show you're interested, but not often enough to get involved, are you faithful? That's very good advice. That was not the issue in the early church. They had no problem with commitment or involvement because people were involved in each other's lives and nothing better sums up that commitment than the phrase in verse 32, they had all things in common. And that's what I want to share about tonight, having all things in common. Now many of you are Bible students to the degree that you know what that word is even in Greek. It's been tossed around for years. It's the Greek word... Koinonia. It's become a famous word. It's used some 29 times in the New Testament. Koinonia. Well, koinonia is one of those words, it's tough to translate. It's translated here common. But it has many different translations in the New Testament because it's one of those rare words that is so packed full of rich meaning that it's tough to define it with one word. In fact, as I was tracing the meaning of koinonia throughout several portions of the New Testament, it means fellowship. It's translated communion. It's also translated communications. It's also rendered distribution, contribution, partners, and also partakers. 
The root word and the meaning at its very root of koinonia means commonness or having all things in common or together. You know that one of the great truths of the New Testament is the truth that says that everything we own, we don't own. Did you know the New Testament taught that? Everything you have, you don't have. It belongs, number one, to God, because God gave it to you in the first place. And number two, it belongs to other people who have needs beyond your own needs. And it is that great New Testament truth that I believe needs to be revived. Where you have a group of people who, although they possessed things, it tells us in verse 32, they did not regard, or it says that, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had koinonia. They had all things in common. A few truths that I have gleaned about this word and this term, this meaning koinonia. As I look through the first few chapters of the book of Acts, I first noticed that it was koinonia, fellowship, that held Christians together in times of adversity. When the world was plummeting the church with persecution, it was that oneness, that commonness, that communion that they had that kept them tightly together. It bound them like glue. It was so important to those early Christians, despite their differences. Now that's important to understand. If you look around, and I like to do that every now and then, to look at the different backgrounds of people, age group, the way we dress, ethnic background, and I notice that as I look around this room, I see variety. It's beautiful to see. It's almost like a microcosm of this city put into one building. Variety. It's so different, yet seemingly getting along with one another to some degree or another, meeting one another's needs, despite differences. And the early church had lots of differences because there were Jews mixed with Gentiles. And those two didn't mix very well at first. There were slaves. In fact, half of the Roman Empire were slaves. 60 million out of 120 million people in the Roman Empire were slaves. And it was taboo for a slave to socially mix with someone who owned that slave. Yet they did it. And so despite the differences, koinonia glued them together in times of adversity. Then I also noticed concerning this fellowship or koinonia that it met the needs of the people. In other words, fellowship to the early church was not just coffee and donuts. It was not getting together one night during the week and hanging out together, just meeting together. The early church understood koinonia more than just Christians meeting in the same room. Christians meeting each other's needs when they got together. Finding out what the other person lacked and trying with their God-given talents and resources to meet that lack. It wasn't just a time to hang out. It was a sharing. And the other thing I noticed about these first few chapters, including Koinonia, is that it included all believers. I noticed that in the verses that we just read. It speaks about all of them did that. And it says in chapter 2, they all had things in common and shared all things with each other. Everyone in the church was involved. It was not a select few having fellowship with one another while the rest folded their arms and watched 
It was everybody getting involved so that everyone felt important. I was flying back home on one of my overseas trips from India. And uh, when I'm traveling, it's one of those times, you know, when you're 10 or 12 hours on one single flight in coach, no less. And I'm six foot five. And to put me in coach, it's kind of funny. And I'm just kind of cra- I kind of play like I'm a refugee in a camp and I make it OK by the end of the trip. I was reading a magazine. It was a magazine published in India and it had a cute little quip and I tore it out and I brought it with me tonight. It's just simply called A Little Story. It goes like this. This is a story about four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done, and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. And everybody thought that anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. Well, it ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. Ha, <laughs> that great? And it kind of goes like that in the church. Everybody realizes involvement is necessary and there's stuff to get done. It ends up that nobody does it. Or just somebody does it. Rather than everybody getting involved. Well, the early church... They were refreshingly different. God has a purpose. Oh, if we could grasp this. God's purpose on earth is summed up in one word, church. That's God's purpose on this earth. God's purpose is not just to have evangelistic crusades and get people's hands raised. That's the first step. The commitment to Jesus is always... Number one, it's point A, and you can't get to Z unless you come to A. However, his purpose in that is to create a church. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is who's in heaven. And you are a small stone, but upon this massive rock, the confession that I am the Christ, I'm going to build my ecclesia, my called out group of people, His purpose is to build a group of people committed to one another. That's his purpose. And God always has his plan, and it always involves that group of people, the church. And when a person gets saved, he just doesn't get saved. He becomes part of the church. That scares a lot of people. It's fun to think about my commitment to God, but I have to belong to them. They are my brothers and my sisters. You know, I actually, probably some of you thought this as well. Before I was a Christian, I looked at other Christians and I ridiculed them. In fact, in high school, one person during what we called the Jesus movement gave his life to Jesus. He was an exchange student from France. And I did everything I could to talk him out of becoming one. Because I thought, you have got to be a nerd. Or if you're not, they'll turn you into one. Because Christians are insipid, flat, boring people. Goodness gracious, you're going to have to wear wingtips, white shirts, and a huge Bible big enough to choke an elephant. I was scared of Christians, frankly. And then I became one. And I realized something, that I was one of them. And that the world would probably look 
with as much skepticism upon me as I did upon the church before I became a part of it. And I started realizing that God's eternal purpose in this world is to save people out of the world and place them in that group of people that he calls his church. There's a psalm, Psalm 68, one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. I want to read it to you. It says that God is a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation, for God sets the solitary in families. God sets the solitary in families. What do you think of when you see a child without a family? It brings tears to your eyes. A child forsaken by mom and dad, left out in the cold. Mom and dad, they could care less. Heard of a child recently who's been on drugs since she was 10. A friend of mine said, how did you get on drugs? She, this girl was 13. She said, my mother. My mother introduced me to drugs and now I'm not taking them anymore. And she understands, she respects my right not to take them, although she wished I would. And now she's really been forsaken by her own family. You know why that, that distresses us? is because we recognize that people were meant to have families around them, caring, loving individuals who give and share authentic love. And no less is that true in the Christian faith. Giving and sharing authentic Christianity with other members of God's family. That's really koinonia. There is a translation called the Moffat Translation. And in speaking of the church, Philippi, it says the church or the colony of heaven. That's what we are. Christianity is, in a sense, an island in a sea of secularism. The world is around us with its waves of materialism and do this and be happy in that. And the church is in the middle of that. And when you stay close to God's people and you get warmed with the fellowship of God's people, there's a whole different perspective that happens. You don't drown in the ocean, in the sea of secularism. The waves don't beat you to death if you are committed to a group of God's people. And that's God's purpose in the church. This week, I got a, a newsletter from a friend of mine. He's a conference speaker. He travels throughout the world, and he was recently in Romania. And never before did the importance of koinonia hit me like it hit me when I read this man's newsletter. He spoke about going to one of the cities in Hungary. And he says, Our drop of supplies in Medeas at a pastor's home also was a heartbreaker. The pastor was not at home, only the wife and two children. Again, their gracious hospitality demanded that we be fed. Out came canned meat and cheese. Now, we would hear that and go, oh, you're kidding. You have to eat that? Well, listen. He says, cheese? You can't even get cheese in Romania. We knew that she had saved her best for us. We purposely picked at the food and left almost all of it for them to eat. And then came the heartbreaker. When we arose to leave, she blocked the door and said she would not let us leave until her husband came home so that he could enjoy fellowship with us. The tears in her eyes revealed that she was more than teasing. We reluctantly and painfully left. Night had come and we were still four hours from Brasov. So hungry she knew her husband was for fellowship that in tears she blocked the doorway and said, Don't leave! He needs fellowship. 
Oh, how the church needs one another. Well, we don't realize it as much because it's so accessible to us. And we take it for granted. Thus, our commitment becomes so shallow. And we have fellowship, but commitment to that fellowship is lacking. And just for a moment, I want to talk about the dark side of koinonia. The dark side of fellowship in this passage. And you're probably thinking, how could there be one? I mean, fellowship sounds absolutely wonderful. How could there be anything wrong with it? There isn't, but there is a dark side of this passage. For verse 32 is also related to another passage in Acts chapter 2. I'll just read it to you. Verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and their goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. And then our text in chapter 4, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses, homeowners, sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. This text that we are reading is the very text that gave birth to the communist dictum. And communism was actually born out of this verse. Many don't realize that. And the dictum says, from every man as he is able, to every man as he is need. And communism was birthed. First of all, there's a difference, as you can see from the text, between communism, as we have heard of it today, and we see the fall of it. And I thought it would be just a good chance to share on it tonight. It's timely because we're seeing government after government in the East toppling because communism has failed. There's a difference between communism and communism that the early church has. And you can see the differences right off the bat. Communism is enforced. It's compulsory. Communism in the New Testament was voluntary. They didn't make them do it. You didn't become property of the state. You did it if you wanted to do it. And that's the vast difference. But there is political communism. Then there is religious communism. Now, we have seen, praise the Lord, countries like Romania, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, and many of these Eastern Bloc nations Falling, the communist regime is giving way. And they're becoming freer. And we praise the Lord for that. In fact, this summer I was invited over to Europe, to Austria, to teach Eastern European pastors from all of these countries who are coming over to the West. And we're going to meet in a castle that used to be Gestapo headquarters in World War II and is now used to preach the gospel. And the whole theme of the conference that they want us to teach on is Europe after the fall of communism. There's one pastor in Romania who is coming, who has a church already of over 5,000 people. In a country that was once hostile to the gospel, now they're open to the gospel. Communism is a regime of brutal force. It is based completely upon atheism. In fact, Karl Marx said, communism begins where atheism begins. You have to tear away God out of the picture. Once you've done that and you've created atheism, then you have the background for communism. 
Because now man isn't important as an individual in the sight of God. He's just part of the state. And then you have the Spock philosophy, the Star Trek II philosophy, that the good of the many outweighs the good of the one or the few. And if you have any good, you must contribute it to the state, but you blend into the background. Communism begins where atheism begins, but it won't work. Communism has failed, hasn't it? The world is watching as Gorbachev is having these new reforms, as all of these countries are toppling with their communistic regimes. It's a, it's a message to the world that, that communism fails. Now, the sad thing is that many of these people will jump on the bandwagon of Western materialism, which will kill them. Because democracy in our country doesn't have the answer for these people. They will still be in bondage and slavery until they come to see the worth of an individual in the sight of God. They'll be in the same, in fact, they'll be in a whole different set of problems, more complex. Because yes, America is free in a sense, but America is one of the most bound countries in the world. Slaves to our own standards of materialism. And people in other countries are beginning to realize that, and if they don't, they will soon. Then there is this religious communism that we see here, or communism. And we've already seen the difference. The point I want to make here, before we breeze on, is that even this communism, or let's call it religious communism, as we see in the early church, also eventually will fail. And you don't see it last throughout the book of Acts. In fact, you come to Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 6. And all of a sudden we read about Ananias and Sapphira, who wanted to beat the system. And in trying to beat the system, they brought reproach upon the early church. God had to kill Ananias and Sapphira. They kicked the bucket right on the spot. They were taken out and buried outside the church. Then in Acts chapter 6, there's an argument. The Grecians and the Hebrews are arguing back and forth because they feel they're being neglected and not getting what everybody should get. After Acts chapter 6, there is never a repeated instance in the book of Acts where this kind of common communism was ever instituted or even ever taught in the early church. Until we come to the founding of this country, the United States of America. And when America was settled, originally there was a socialistic, communistic concept. When people met in Plymouth, Massachusetts, between 1621 and 1623, a document has been found, in fact it was found around 1970, early 1970s, that showed that people had a common store, a common place where they could get together and everything was doled out. And let me read to you some of that document. Quote, some people complained that they were too weak to work. Young men complained because they had to work hard to feed other men and their wives and children. Women rebelled when ordered to cook for men who were not their husbands or when asked to wash their clothes. Now we know, well, that's just part of human nature and you might say, well, if you're redeemed and you're a Christian, that will never happen. Well, it, it didn't work out well in the book of Acts either. Continuing on, it says, They said that they were little better than slaves, and their husbands said they would not permit their womenfolk to do that kind of labor. In 1623, they turned from that communism, that communistic communal property, and they gave each family a parcel of land for its own use. 
And now I want to read something from William Bradford's document in 1623 after this event. He said, Women went into the fields willingly, taking their children along with them. All women, men, and children planted as much corn as they felt they could possibly work. People who had formerly complained that they were too weak to dig or hoe, declaring that it was tyranny to make them undertake such work, gladly began to plant and cultivate for themselves. When the harvest was brought in, instead of famine, there was plenty, and so they gave thanks to God. And you know when they gave thanks to God? In 1623, that was the beginning of a celebration that we still celebrate every year called Thanksgiving. It was born out of that change that happened, the early colonists in our country. Because they recognized now there's a dignity for each person, and the family works together. I don't want to draw a big point out of that, except... When some people say we need a church just like the book of Acts, know that the church in the book of Acts had its share of problems, and they had its share of problems even in this area. Because although you're a Christian, you still have a sinful nature. And later on, the church realized that, and they kind of went back to the Jewish policy of land ownership, yet, when anyone had a need, taking offerings and giving it to people who had greater needs but not telling everybody that they had to sell everything and sell their house and pool it all together, otherwise they wouldn't be spiritual. It was purely voluntary, and that quickly faded away. Now, from all of this, what can we learn as Christians? Since this form of caring for one another, in the sense of selling everything and pooling it together, this communistic, socialistic way is out, and did not continue in the early church, the principles upon which it was founded did not fade away. You know, if you were to boil down the early church, you could sum it up in one word, selflessness. And you could look at it in two different aspects. Ownership, that is, God owns me, and brotherhood. God owns me, therefore everything I have is His, and brotherhood. What I have is yours. You see, that's the big difference between socialistic communism in Russia and some of the other places, past tense, which says, what's yours is mine. And Christianity, which says, what's mine is yours. And it's a freedom and it's a sharing. Look in verse 24, just as a a reminder. As they went to the Lord in prayer, notice what they said. When they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them. The first thing you and I must realize when we are considering commonness with one another is a basic fact that we alluded to at the beginning of this study. The air that we breathe is God's. The world that we live on, the real estate, is God's. The hands and the legs and the feet that we have belong to God. He created them and He gave them to us. So in in essence, He owns everything for He made everything. Well, I went to school and I have the ability to go out and do this trade, but God gave you a body to do it. God gave you resources to get it done. So in essence, it all comes from God anyway. He owns you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God resides in you. That's why Paul said, I know that in me that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. 
In and of myself, apart from God, I am zero. God owns me. And you know what? When we come to that position, we have true happiness. You know, we get frustrated and discontent when we think of what we lack, don't we? Well, if I could only get this, I'd be happy. Well, if you realize that it belongs to God anyway, and your life belongs to God, happy are you. You will be changed. And the early church also recognized, and the other point we must recognize is brotherhood. We belong to one another. You know, years ago there was a song. It's very popular on the radio. I'm going to share one part of a verse with you and see if you remember the chorus. It goes like this. This is on the secular radio stations. Lord, we don't need another mountain. There are mountains and hillsides enough to climb. There are oceans and rivers enough to cross, enough to last till the end of time. What the world, what the world, forgive me. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. That's the only thing that there's just too little of. We could rewrite that song, couldn't we? And sing, what the church needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. What a contrast often between the modern church and verse 32. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Like the girl that Pete was sharing about from the high school group, sharing with the homeless person on the street. Not saying, here, borrow my coat for the next five minutes before I leave. But here, have my coat. Chances are I can get one a lot quicker than you can to replace the one I'm giving you, so take it. What the church needs now is love, sweet love. Didn't Jesus say that basically? Didn't Jesus sing that song long before it became popular in our own generation? Didn't Jesus say, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you? that you also love one another, and by this we'll all know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Remember that tiny little book next to Hebrews called Philemon? One chapter. You almost skip it. In fact, maybe you didn't even know it was there. You've skipped through quick, too quickly through it. Philemon is one of those interesting books because it's about a slave and a slave owner. You see, Philemon was one of those slave owners that lived in a town called Colossae, very prominent city in the New Testament. He had many slaves, and one of them was named Onesimus. And Onesimus was tempted like every other slave in the Roman Empire was tempted, and that was to split, to leave the master and to be free. And he actually left Colossae, left Philemon, his master, and he took off, and he made it all the way to Rome without getting caught thinking in Rome, I have freedom, I'm anonymous, no one will find me. Until he's probably cruising down the streets one day and he starts uh, getting a little hungry. And now he sees that there were advantages to being owned by a master. One of is that I get food every single day. Now I'm in Rome, I don't know anybody, and I can't get a job because I'm branded. I'm a runaway slave. And he's cruising down the streets, kicking a can, and all of a sudden he sees a group of people crowded around a prisoner in chains named Paul the Apostle. Now here's a runaway slave who's free. Here's a man in chains who's preaching the gospel. And he notices something as he watches Paul the Apostle, that this man in chains is free. And that he himself, a runaway slave, is actually bound in his freedom. 
and Paul leads him to the Lord. And no doubt they had a conversation. And Onesimus confesses, I'm a runaway slave, what do I do? Paul says, you know what you do? You go back to your slave master. And you confess your sin to him. In fact, let me write a quick little letter, you send it with you, and I'll kind of endorse you. That was the letter to Philemon in the New Testament. And part of that letter is Paul entreats the slave owner Philemon to take Onesimus back. And this is how he puts it. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. Isn't that beautiful example of brotherhood despite differences? God owns me. I'm His slave. He's my master. And everybody else is my brother. Because of that, I owe a debt of love to them. There's a commonness. There's a koinonia. There's something that glues us inseparably together. So in closing, let me give you a test. You don't have to write it down. You can answer yes or no in your own heart. You don't have to share your answers with people next to you, which is probably a good thing. Three questions. Number one, am I, am I seeking Christian fellowship or am I forsaking it? You say, the fact that I'm here shows that I'm seeking it, not necessarily. Are you seeking koinonia? Are you seeking not just hanging out and having fun times, but are you seeking meeting the needs of people who have them on the basis of Jesus Christ? Koinonia is more than just coffee and donuts or dinner together. Are you seeking authentic Christian fellowship or are you forsaking it? Question number two. Do you find yourself sharing and encouraging or guarding and criticizing? Question number three. Are you sensitive and flexible enough to meet others' needs when they arise? Or are you so hard that you pass them by? Do they just completely escape your notice that people around you have needs? In whatever groups you meet in or when you have someone over, you talk to them in church, do you recognize that that person has a need? Are you hardened to it? Just a little quiz. Those answers will help you discern your own level of koinonia, of fellowship. Let's stand as we pray together. And as we stand, let's join each other's hands or even shoulders, hug one another, and we'll pray one for another as we close. Beautiful sight to watch. Brothers and sisters taking a hold of one another. Heavenly Father, You own us. We talk about human rights, our own rights, what rights we have over another. And we completely don't realize that we're slaves. That You bought us with a price, therefore we are not our own. You own us. And we have no rights, only privileges. And we're not to be concerned about our rights anyway or our needs, but the rights of others, the needs of others, to esteem others better than ourselves. 
God deliver us from the need to be noticed, from the need to have our esteem raised, from the need of self. It's in so many guises today. Deliver us from that, Lord. It's so, it's so subtle and it's so damning. And I pray, Father, for authentic koinonia to flow between us. That it would hold us together in times of adversity. That we would meet needs and we would have our needs met in doing so. And that it would in this fellowship include all, not just a few. I pray that there would be a brotherhood that continually develops in our relationships in this body. Because whether we like it or not, we're part of what you've called your church. Part of the same group. And when we criticize anyone else or another church, we're criticizing us because we're all called in the same batch. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for the possibility of koinonia. Lord, I was noticing, I do it too, we clap when we hear of another coming to know you, and it is wonderful. We've seen so much of it this last weekend at Easter. I pray that we would get equally excited when there is reconciliation and restitution an emptying of bitterness and wrath, and a coming together of believer with believer, having loved one for another. Keep us from being sin sniffers. Help us to be soul seekers, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.